Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC Senior Congressional Correspondent Mary Bruce. Together with Mary Bruce. Uh, it, welcome it, it, back, I, I, man. It, it feels good. It feels good. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've been immersed in book world, let me tell you. There are some very serious uh, Mary Bruce cameos in this book, but you're going to have to wait. <laughs> it's not going to be out till the spring. Uh-oh. Um, so, Mary, we, we've got we got a lot going on. I mean, the president's uh, canceling a state visit to uh, to Denmark. He's, uh, I mean, I mean, you know, what is going on? The uh, slow days of August. Um, so, th- this was an interesting uh, thing, Mary. This whole Denmark thing, and there's a lot, there's a lot lot more to talk about. So we got news on on guns. I went out to uh, to Arizona. And uh, spoke to Cindy McCain. Uh, next week is Sunday. Actually, is the one-year anniversary of her husband Senator McCain's death. Uh, and you, you were with uh, Senator Merkley just a short while ago. So we, we, we got, we got a big show. Yeah, there's a lot going on in Washington, and, and you know, I want to hear about your trip. We want to talk a little bit more about Senator Merkley and his immigration push. But John, you mentioned the the president's news here and saying that he's not going to Denmark after all. Essentially because they said no thank you to his request to buy Greenland. What is really going on here? <laughs> okay, so so let, let, let's take a couple of steps back here, Mary, um, because th- this is actually personally a, a story that is kind of bewildering to me. Uh, I we, we had heard uh, that the president had been talking to aides about the possibility of buying Greenland about two months ago, okay? Um, and, you know... I kind of laughed at it. I was like, this has got to be a joke. But, you know, we, we, we did the due diligence and uh, and asked people. I asked a very senior White House official about two months ago, so what? what is this? Is the president really talking about, uh, musing about the idea of buying Greenland? And I was given as flat a denial as I have ever been given about anything. In fact, uh, this official suggested something about smoking dope. Um, I, I forget if it was the the person who told me that or if it was me or whatever it was, but I was told absolutely no. And now, you know, you have the president himself not only uh, saying that he was looking into Greenland. We heard him from a few days ago saying it would be like a big real estate deal. And when the when, when, when the Danish prime minister, Dan, you know, Greenland is effectively a territory of Denmark. That's why we're talking about Denmark here, um, you know, said that, uh, that there was no way that Greenland was for sale. Uh, he's canceled a state visit that, by the way, was supposed to – we're just, I mean, really – just just a week away from it. What is it? What the heck? Well, and also not to mention that this is an important ally, right? The president is canceling a, a trip with with a country, the leader of a country with whom you know our troops are, are are fighting alongside in Afghanistan. This is you know there are serious consequences to these kinds of moves, and I think a lot of Washington is all scratching their heads because it does seem that this was sort of a joke that now has kind of run amok in some ways. Is this just the president? You think once again? trying to change the conversation as he has done so many times before? Is he, you know, now really genuinely offended that, that, that they rebuked his offer? What's actually happening here? I, I don't know. And I, um, I I actually, just before I came into the studio here, uh, texted the, the aide, uh, this top White House official had told me two months ago, you know, this was definitely not happening. And I, and I talked to this official a few other times as, as the reports had been bubbling up and went, went public. Um, and uh, and I said, look, we are going to have to talk about this Greenland thing. Um, and he responded to me saying, uh, yes, but apparently we won't be doing that in Denmark. Oh. 
<laughs> well, see, they still have a sense of humor about it, kind of. I, I mean, it, it is it is an oddity, and, and and I don't know. I mean, you raise a great question. Was it ever really a serious thing? Um, and is the president just uh, you know looking for another kind of entertaining diversion? And maybe maybe Mary just didn't feel like going to Denmark. Ah, uh, maybe, but it but it does. You know, you and I were talking earlier. It does get at this bigger problem issue that has occurred and is still occurring often where the White House and and the president's aides say one thing and then the president goes out and does the opposite. Right. And we saw that again this week when it comes to tax cuts. The president seemed and his you know White House officials seem to suggest that's not something that they're considering when on tel- television, we're out on, on cable shows saying, nope, not on the table. And then the president of the Oval Office oh, went and said, oh, yeah, we're, we're considering it. Yeah, so th- th- this is, I mean, we, again, adamant, you know, the, the adamant denials and then the president confirming. Um, it's, it, it, it is strange. I, I think I've, I've struggled with this over, over the last two and a half years because it's not a new phenomenon, although it does seem to be an intensifying phenomenon. Um, part of this is that the, the president truly does act as, as we have said. He acts as his own chief of staff, his own communications director, his own national security advisor, his own top domestic policy advisor. I mean, he, he drives the ship on this stuff. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I don't think in, in, in these cases, I, like for instance, with the, uh, the payroll tax thing, I, I don't think we were being lied to necessarily. I don't know. It's, it's, it, it's hard to say. Were, were the aides just like caught by surprise by the president's act. I mean, I, I don't know. Well, and so often we've seen before, right, that, that there often isn't a, a clear formulated strategy. These things sort of seem to be happening on the fly. But when it comes to what to do about the economy, it also seems the White House, you know, is struggling here because on one hand, they, you know, the president insists uh, there's nothing to see here. The economy is going strong and didn't seem to want to, to concede that they may be considering options to try and boost the economy. But yet at the same time, you know, are clearly considering some options, which I think they're afraid there's a certain hesitancy from the president or from the White House to, to admit that they were considering those options because it may be somehow admitting that, that, they, that the economy may need a little help. And, and look, frankly, uh, it would be responsible for a White House economic team to be looking at steps to take should the economy uh, uh, take take a turn down. I mean, that would be that would be logical. Um, but uh, but forward planning has not been a big a big mark of, of the of the Trump administration. The, the other thing, Mary, uh, before we get to Cindy McCain, is uh, I, I was struck by something else the president said in the Oval Office, which is you remember because we were on we were on a series of these trips. Um, you know, do, I, I, you and I have been to uh, more than our share of G seven meetings when they used to be called G eight meetings because there was a. Uh, a country uh, called Russia that was that was part of the G8, uh, which was then uh, booted out of the G8 uh, in the wake of, uh, of of the invasion of Crimea. Um, and listen to what the president is saying now about maybe making the G7 back into the G8. I guess President Obama, because uh, Putin outsmarted him, President Obama thought it wasn't a good thing to have Russia in, so he wanted Russia out. But I think it's much more appropriate to have Russia in. It should be the G8 because a lot of the things we talk about have to do with Russia. So I could certainly see it being the G8 again. And if somebody would make that motion, I would certainly be disposed to think about it very favorably. Now, again, uh, Mary, this is the kind of thing, if there were to be a move to, and of course, this is not a unilateral decision the United States would make. The United States is one of the seven (laughs) members of the G7. Um, 
But if there were to be a move to go in that direction, this is something that would go through a national security process. The State Department would weigh in, the Pentagon would weigh in, the national security team, the intel, you know, all of that. And now it just seems like the president's riffing in the Oval Office. I, I, I've seen no indication that this was something that was actually under active consideration. No. And once again, it is something that would have, you know, a pretty weighty impact as well. And the president just sort of seemed to you know, casually throw it out there. Why not? Let's let's do that, too. Um, it's- and, and, and wait a minute. So that so and, and, and you because you were you were there at the White House with me when all this was going on under Obama. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't realize. Is it is it accurate to say that uh, that Russia was thrown out because Putin outsmarted <laughs> Obama? Is that what happened? Uh, that, that, what? That, that, that certainly is Trump's take on it. I think a lot of people would disagree with that uh, assertion of the history here. But but look, that's President Trump's spin. I think that comes as no surprise that that's the way he would try and sort of rewrite history here. Um but it's going to take a lot more to get it, the G7, back up to the G8 if, you know, more than just sort of casually commenting in the Oval Office. And, and you and I were talking just, just uh, before we got uh, in, in the studio here about um, the president's rather, um, I don't know, un- unusual comments on Jews and the Democratic Party. Let's take a listen. Where has the Democratic Party gone? Where have they gone? where they're defending these two people over the state of Israel. And I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, uh, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. Wow. Yeah, and he's not, this isn't, you know, these were comments that he made with intention, uh, comments that he is standing by, it seems, based on what he just told reporters uh, out on the White House South Lawn. And, you know, it's that the president is clearly trying to use religion to drive a, a partisan wedge here, right? There's a political purpose behind these kinds of comments, but you hear this language, disloyalty, and that sparks a lot of real fear uh, and has sparked a lot of swift condemnation for the president. I mean, we've heard many Democrats coming out uh, and saying that this smacks of anti-Semitism. Well, the um, Anti-Defamation League has come yes. out and flatly said it is anti-Semitism. And the, you know, the ADL is not a partisan organization. Um, and I, I was struck by the, uh, the forcefulness of, of their condemnation of that statement. And what's interesting, too, is, you know, what is the real political purpose of this? Because, of course, the overwhelming majority of Jewish voters traditionally vote Democratic. Um, and so is the president really trying to woo Democratic voters here? You know, you, you've seen some Democratic leaders coming out and saying the president is just trying to you know, rile up his base with this kind of talk. So that, I think, segues into our discussion of civility and, and my trip out to, uh, to Phoenix, Arizona, where I, I, I met with Cindy McCain. And she's, you know, you, you, you could see, I, I saw her at, at her home. Um, she, she's, she's moved to a new house in the, in the neighborhood that she grew up in, in Phoenix. And um, you, you can s- still see that she's pained by the loss of, of her husband, as, as I, you, you know, you would expect. Um, she's working on creating a, um, a, a library, uh, you know, McCain Library. She's got the McCain Institute doing, um, uh, you know, trying to, work on his legacy. Uh, and she's created this new initiative on civility. Um, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, I, uh, she told me, I started by asking her about the memorial, uh, that incredible memorial that McCain himself designed uh, before, you know, in his, in his final days. He, he was the one that made the calls and asked Obama to speak, to ask uh, George W. Bush to speak. He's the one that, uh, you know, worked on the guest list. Um, and like, the, 
everybody was. Clinton was there. Carter was there. Uh, you know, Bush, Obama, um, uh, Vice President Cheney, Vice President Gore. Um, um, this was, this was the, this was everybody except for, as you recall, there was somebody that didn't show up or wasn't there, Donald Trump. And I asked her about why Trump wasn't invited because that's the way we all reported it. And she insisted that it wasn't, uh, that he wasn't actually, that it wasn't an active decision. So I don't know what to go with that, but she was, she was reluctant to, to hit back on Donald Trump who has continued uh, to to hit John McCain and John McCain's legacy even after even after he died, which is which is keeping with this idea of uh, you know if you're gonna if you're gonna have this return to civility at some point the cycle's got to stop. Yeah, but it is it's got to be really hard. Oh my I mean, God, Donald yeah. Trump has just been relentless in going after John McCain. Even you know months after his passing, he simply will not let. This feud between the two of them go um, and he just simply can't seem to even let anyone honor the memory of John McCain in many ways without wanting to kind of get a dig in here or there. It has to be difficult for McCain. We know it's difficult for his family to be on the receiving end of a lot of of, of the president's ire here. Um, and for Cindy McCain clearly to try to take the higher road here, you know, says something about that, that broader conversation of civility. But you got to imagine, man, it's really hard to hear some of that. But she was, even as she is very civil and very measured in what she said, she was quite critical on the direction of the Republican Party, specifically on the issues of welcoming and refugees and uh, on on immigration um, and the general tone. Uh, Take a listen to this. This party is not the party of Abraham Lincoln that I've seen anyway, nor the party of Ronald Reagan. Um, It's we're, we're missing what we stand for. And that is, you know, in in our country and working together and working, we're the ones that are you should be nonpartisan. We're the ones that should be working for the good of all. Although I believe in America, I believe so much in this country, and I know John did too. I believe this pendulum is going to swing back. Um, I don't know when, but I just don't believe that we're going to stick right here on the side that's just disruptive and mean and non-progressive in any way. And I asked her about the, you know, the, the incident where the, 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 the rally was chanting, send her back, uh, regarding Congresswoman Omar. And because you remember, obviously, famously in 2008, when, when McCain stood up to the woman at his town hall meeting who said that uh, Barack Obama was an Arab. Um, and, uh, and I asked, how would McCain have responded? Take a listen. Well, he would have been very angry at that. That he would not have accepted it either, and I'm, I'm quite certain would have spoke out about it. Um, these are American citizens. These are our citizens. Um, we are from all walks of life, and they have just a, as much a right to be here as as we do. Uh, that's not what that's that's not what this or this country was founded on, and our founding fathers, I think, would be be very concerned about this, be very upset about it. That's what they fought to stop was the lack of inclusion. And Mary, I asked her uh, who is carrying the torch, the McCain torch uh, in, in Congress now. You know, he was one of those who was willing to stand up his own party. In fact, I would say not just willing, but re- relished in, in, yeah. in the opportunities to stand up to the leadership of his own party, including this current president. Um, and and she said nobody. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's just remarkable because he was viewed, you know, as sort of this 
barometer on the hill in many ways, this voice of reason who was willing, you know, on more than one occasion to to say what wasn't necessarily popular and also to stand up to Donald Trump. Uh, you know, it's really hard to think about John McCain and not, you know, think about his one of his final acts on the hill that defiant thumbs down to the president's efforts to try and, and overhaul Obamacare because he simply didn't agree with the direction that the fight was headed in. Um, and there are no longer those voices really on the Hill. There is a tremendous void in the Republican Party on Capitol Hill of those voices. And it wasn't just just John McCain, but, you know, there are so many who, who tried to follow that lead uh, ha- suffered politically for it. You know, you think about Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, others who were willing to stand up to this president and, and then lost their seats uh, in Congress because of it. And it's been challenging, I think, for a lot of Republicans to try and fill that space. Um, there are, you know, it's not to say that there aren't any Republicans on the Hill who disagree with this president, but you feel the absence of John McCain still uh, very significantly in Washington. And when he was doing all of that uh, mavericky stuff in, in, in the Senate, he, he had a sidekick. He had a couple yeah. sidekicks, but I think his most important sidekick, his most loyal sidekick, uh, was uh, the senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham. Yeah, his best friend. I mean, they, they didn't agree on everything, but they were very close friends. They joked around with each other often, and they you know, were gut checks for each other, I think, in a lot of ways. And Senator Graham has done a complete 180, it really feels, in a lot of ways. Uh, he now is in lockstep with the president on most issues. And it, it is a common phrase on the Hill. What would John, John McCain think uh, of Lindsey Graham's position on a number of issues as he comes out and continues to defend this president uh, and and in a lot of ways sort of bend over backwards to, to do so? Uh, you have to think that in a lot of these instances where John McCain would have been speaking out forcefully against this administration, now to have Lindsey Graham being the president's chief defender um, is just a pretty remarkable shift. And Lindsey Graham is was not just an ally of McCain's. He was basically a member of the McCain family, very yeah. close to all of them, to his kids, to Cindy, remains so, or remains so to this day, um, which made the question that I asked her about this a little, a little uncomfortable. I, I asked her. Basically, the question you posed, what would John McCain think of what's become of Lindsey Graham? Lindsey has his own, his own political career to worry about and his own political life. Um, I would just hope that in the long run, everyone would, would begin to, to move the right direction, including Lindsey or anybody else. I'm, but Lindsey's a part of my family. Right. He's a good friend, and I, I cannot will not be critical of Lindsey. But boy, it sounded like she was going in that direction, didn't it? I mean, she clearly doesn't want to go there. But the fact that she says that he has his own political career to worry about in his own political life. I mean, that sure suggests that she thinks that a lot of what Lindsey Graham is doing and the positions that he's taking are not because he truly believes this, but because it's politically expedient. And, and, that, and that she would hope in the long run everyone would move in the right direction, including Lindsey. Uh, that would imply that he's not moving in yeah. the right direction right now. <laughs> that that's a that's a clear, not so subtle way of saying, "Listen up, Lindsay." <laughs> All right, so I know you have to go. Let me play one more bite from from um, from Cindy uh, McCain, and then we will take a break and come back and hear your interview um, uh, with Jeff Merkley. But this is about the initiative because I I, I I do think that it's I, I think it's an interesting initiative, and I think that it's one that has you know. It, it may seem naive uh, to many, she, as she acknowledged. Some people in her own family think that uh, uh, that she's she's a little too um, you know positive about how things can change. 
uh, in, 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 in how and in, in what can make them change. But this is an in- interesting initiative. Here's how she describes it. What I'm asking people to do is to go out and perform an act of civility. Uh, perhaps you go and talk to a family member that you've disagreed with. And, and try to make peace with that family member, agree to disagree with that family member, and then post it on social media. It, it, we've, you know, we've, we've certainly turned a corner in this country, and so this initiative, uh, I'm hoping that people will post all of this and then hashtag it, you know, acts of civility, and talk about it, and maybe, maybe encourage other people to do the same thing. Uh, so, uh, you know, let, 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 God bless her, and let, let's hope. I, this is... You know, I, I I love the idea. I really do. I love the idea. And 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 uh, Mary, I hope that you uh, will take part in this and maybe you know call up Justin Fischel. You know, <laughs> All right. I mean, you know, the, the 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 leader of our team. We are always civil here at ABC News, John Carl. <laughs> I, I even though I hear you trying to get me into trouble. Um, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. But look, in this political climate, it. it is this going to make a huge difference? Look, it certainly can't hurt. And I think every little thing that you can do to try and make uh, not just our, our politicians, but, you know, all of us be a little bit kinder and more civil, even Justin, it can't hurt. Yes. And maybe even Rick Klein. But I'm, I, we, uh, oh, he's be, a lost cause. That could be going too far. Forget about that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor Hastings. I don't know. I mean, where, where's Trevor it going to go? the yeah. nicest of us all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with your interview with Senator Merkley. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Joining us now, Senator Merkley from the great state of Oregon, Democratic Senator. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're so welcome. You are out with a new book entitled America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families. I want to pick your brain about this book, about the solutions, what you think uh, the challenges are that we're facing right now. But before we get to all of that, uh, I want to ask you a quick question about, about the news of the day on gun reforms. We have seen the president once again uh, walk back uh, promises to, to to tackle this issue. He just a couple days ago was calling for stricter background checks. Now it seems uh, after some interactions with the NRA, he is uh, doing another about face. You, of course, have tried to champion this issue. You've co-sponsored some legislation to expand background checks. What do you make of this latest flip-flop? Well, it's a profile in failed leadership. The The president uh, simply hears from one powerful lobby group and he, he caves. And we've seen it happen time and time again. What is it going to take to finally tackle this issue? And if the president isn't willing to lead the charge, do you see any chance that your Republican colleagues on the Hill are willing to take action? I believe that they will not take action if they feel their president's not ready to sign a bill in the Oval Office. So use that as an excuse. Why should we act? They're also afraid of alienating their, their own base. Uh, even though it's a small percent of Americans, uh, roughly 10, 10% that oppose a strong background check system, uh, those 10% are very significant in the Republican primaries, and, and they certainly have their voice amplified through the megaphone of the NRA. So let's turn to the the subject of immigration. The child separation policy, it is um, the subject of, of the bulk of your book. You call it the most cruel law the, the, the child separation policy under this administration. And now we're actually seeing today that the administration is trying to change the rules here and, and the number of days that the U.S. can detain migrant children. Right now, it's 20 days. It seems they want to make that longer. Uh, what is the impact of that? 
That phrase, the most cruel law, was from a 12-year-old girl who had been separated from her mother for, for two months, not knowing if she would ever see her again right at the start of, of child separation. I invited them to join me at the State of the Union, and it was on her, her 12th birthday. But it was a, a powerful story of, of uh, a family fleeing enormous violence in, in Central America. And we've seen this violence from gangs, from domestic violence, from street-level extortion, from the drug cartels, and certainly combined with other challenges uh, that people are facing, including uh, hunger. There's enormous stunting going on in just because malnutrition in Central America and lack of, lack of jobs. But what the president is proposing is internment camps. It is the large-scale imprisonment of children and parents for the duration of their immigration proceedings, which can go on for years. This would be terribly traumatic to the children, just as child separation is traumatic. And we must not allow America to go back to the philosophy of World War II, where we lock up thousands of families for years at a time. Internment camps, that is a powerful term to to hear being used in this modern day. Why do you think the administration is pursuing this? Well, they, they decided they couldn't do child separation, and the Flores Settlement Agreement, which they're trying to get rid of, uh, prevents them from doing that, they would, would, would lock up uh, the, the entire family, but then it turns out Flores blocks them from doing that as, as well. This is why the president is really, really focused on, on getting the Flores and has proposed three different strategies to, to get rid of it. At the heart of it is a dehumanization of of refugees, and of course the president has called them rapists and murderers and animals, and a strategy that stems from if we make conditions horrific, people will not come. And uh, they're willing to inflict trauma on both adults and on children to achieve this objective. It's a flawed assumption. People will flee when their lives are going to end on a Friday or a Saturday. They will flee on a Thursday or Friday. And uh, the conditions of the the extortion and, and the uh, violence in Central America are such that is just often the case. So they're going to, to come, but are they going to be treated with dignity and respect as they pursue as- asylum? Or are they going to be treated as less than human? And this administration has weighed in on the side of, uh, of uh, unacceptable human rights violations against refugees. The administration sees these changes that they're trying to make now. They say this is a loophole, that it needs to be eliminated. Are they right? Is this a loophole? Does this need to be addressed? It's an obstacle to their vision, and their vision is mass imprisonment. And it is totally inconsistent with the vision we have in America of understanding that refugees are are fleeing persecution, civil war, religious persecution, natural catastrophes, because so many of our ancestors came to America under these circumstances. They saw Lady Liberty. They saw the torch. They heard the words of uh, the poet carved into the Statue of Liberty, and they said, America is going to give us a chance to recover from horrific conditions. And that torch is being extinguished by this administration. So Flores is not a loophole. Flores is a fundamental protection of the health and welfare of children. And it is exactly the foundation that was established by the court in the agreement. 
This administration does not accept that it must provide fundamental protection for children. Just this last week, they said, despite the fact that several refugee children have died from the flu, despite the fact that children are often packed together along with adults in in holding cells where flu can move very quickly, they're not going to do flu immunizations. This is an administration that just appealed to a circuit court, the requirement that they provide a mattress and soap to refugees, which is just beyond absurd. I mean, what kind of country is it that would deny basic hygiene or the or require people to sleep night after night on a on a freezing cold concrete floor? Uh, this this is not America, and we've got to put a spotlight on it. And that's why I've written this book. America is better than this. To say you want to understand this complex issue, I put together all the issues here, and. Um, and it's a call to action that we cannot, we are losing our souls if we let go of decency. What if the administration seems fairly intent on continuing down this path? Besides shining a light on the, on the real concerns here, what can you do? What can Congress do to try and counteract some of this, if anything? So in June of... Yes. In June of last year, the president had an executive order, and he called together a press conference, and he was tr- surrounded by U.S. Republican senators, and he said, I'm stopping child separation. That was a lie. The court had stopped child separation, and in addition to that, they, they, they had closed, if you might say, the front door to child separation. The Trump administration is continuing to separate children from, from their parents through the back door. In other words, if they have any excuse, like a parent has a DUI, or a previous uh, marijuana uh, conviction, then they will separate a child from a parent, even though they would never be separated under a, American law. So, but what was in the document that was on his desk when he held that press conference in the Oval Office was an executive order that had three strategies for eliminating the Flores decision that says you cannot lock up children for an extended period and that you have to provide basic hygiene and and nutrition. And one strategy uh, was to go back to the court and ask them to reverse their earlier finding. Well, that was going to go nowhere. The second strategy was legislation, and it's really the one he emphasized in his press conference. It failed twice in the House, and then it came over to the Senate, and uh, Senator Tillis and Senator Cruz both had a a law to um, propose to eliminate uh, Flores, And I went to the floor and laid out the history of internment camps in America and said this will be the biggest fight you have ever seen if this comes to the floor of the United States of America and the Senate. And um, Mitch McConnell did not bring it to the the floor. And now with the Democrats in charge of the House, this is not – the legislative strategy is not going to pass. So that brings a third, regulation. So the administration is saying we're ignoring Congress – uh, we're ignoring Flores, and we will simply write a regulation to overrule it. And what they're, they're basing it on, a clause in the Flores settlement that says if a regulation is implemented, that is done to implement Flores, 45 days later, a Flores settlement is null. The problem is the, the president's regulation doesn't implement Flores. It destroys it. It destroys the requirement for a state-licensed facility. It destroys the requirement for state oversight. It destroys the, the uh, requirement uh, that children be moved out of a prison-like setting within three days. And so this is completely unacceptable, and their regulation will undoubtedly be challenged in the court. And I believe 
on everything I've seen, that the court will find that this regulation uh, violates Flores and will, will be struck down. Immigration has always been a notoriously difficult issue to try and tackle on Capitol Hill. But there is a fair amount of outrage and frustration, I think, amongst your Republican colleagues as well. Is there really no common ground here, no room for the two sides to come together on this issue and do something? The president has driven the parties far apart. And to symbolize that, you had 40 Republican senators signing on to a bill to establish the indefinite imprisonment of children a bill that uh, Senator Tillis introduced. There was a similar one from Senator Cruz. Meanwhile, not one Democrat sponsored that bill. My my bill to stop the cruel treatment of immigrant children has 40 Democrats, and I don't have a single Republican on it. They're afraid to get on it. They're afraid to take on the president on, on this. They tell us privately that they're appalled by the, the treatment of refugee children. But they have not spoken up in the past, and now they feel like if they speak up now, how do they explain that they didn't speak up a year ago? And, and so they feel like they just have to stay the course and be silent. And this is what we can't do in America. We cannot be silent on the treatment, the human rights violations with our government, on our land, with our tax money. We can't be silent. My colleague, uh, John Carl, sat down this week with Cindy McCain, of course, the widow of John McCain, and they discussed some of this. Why is this issue so difficult to tackle? Uh, I'd love to get your reaction. Take a listen. John was always the guy fighting for the little guy. Um, And I think John would be very discouraged about the border situation right now with with all with our immigrants and our our quote refugees coming across the border now and their treatment. Of course, he would also be the voice of reason in all of this, which is what we're sorely lacking right now, is his voice of reason and his understanding of uh, the, the purpose and the, the, the ability to be able to work across the aisle on these issues. That's how we worked for so many years. And now to just close ranks and not talk to anybody doesn't make any sense. It, it not only doesn't make any sense, it doesn't do any good for the country. You touched on this a little bit, but how do you change any of this? How does Washington get anything done? And do you agree with, with, with Cindy McCain's assessment? Are there no more voices of reason? I do agree with her. John McCain was part of the group of eight, four Democrats, four Republican senators who came together in 2013. They crafted an extensive fix to a broken immigration system. We passed it with a bipartisan supermajority in the Senate. It would have addressed security at the border, security at employment, security with people overstaying their visas. It would have provided flexibility in visas to provide additional workers and adjust the workforce either in high tech or in, in agriculture. It was a comprehensive effort to establish the rule of law with a system that treated people fairly and provided a path to citizenship for people who arrived before the law was introduced. That was a collective, bipartisan vision past supermajority in the Senate, and the House of Representatives under Republican control would not take up the bill, even though they had the votes to pass it. And why would they not take it up? In the end, Republicans savor this as a political issue. It was the main political issue that Trump drove through the 2018 election. It explains why zero tolerance came out from Jeff Sessions six months before the election. It was to create this sense of we need a fear factor to run on. And we don't have ISIS. And we don't have Ebola. 
But what have we got? We've got immigration. So we need to have leadership from the top that says, let's not play politics continuously. Let's work together and fix this broken system. This issue has clearly struck a very serious chord with you. This is the first time you've written a book. You've spent a lot of time trying to shed light on the conditions at the border, trying to get in to some of these facilities. Why is this issue so deeply personal for you? Well, part of it is I I spent early in my life time in developing countries. I was in West Africa and Ghana as a high school exchange student. Uh, I was with the State Department as an intern in India. I worked in villages in Mexico. I traveled through Central America 39 years ago uh, uh, with a friend who is now head of Refugees International. In other words, I can personally connect with what is going on in these countries uh, when they're in severe turmoil that produces refugees fleeing persecution. So I can connect with that. The second thing is when when I read Jeff Sessions' speech and said, well, this sounds like tough on crime, not a big surprise, six months out from an election, zero tolerance. But I read the detail and I said, it sounds like they are going to deliberately inflict trauma on children. And I'm sure that's not the case. No way would they do that. Even Trump would not do that. And somebody on my team said, well, the only way to find out is to to go to the border. And I thought, that's right. And that Sunday I flew down to the border, and that's where I discovered that, yes, indeed, the kids were being torn out of their parents' arms, and they were being sorted into these cages there at the facility in in, uh, McAllen. And when you witness that, and nobody else had witnessed it really to that point, and then I went up the road and a couple hours later tried to get into the the facility where I'd heard that hundreds of boys were being stuffed into a Walmart uh, who had been separated from their parents, and they wouldn't let me in, and that drew tremendous attention to the issue. It was a blessing they wouldn't let me in. What were they trying to hide? And it wasn't hundreds of boys. It wasn't a 1,000 boys. It was 1,500 boys in that one building, completely inadequate facility. Unbelievable that they would try to hide that from the American public And uh, because of that day, uh, seven days later, the press got in, 10 days, or or I guess 10 days later, the press got in, 14 days later, I got in with a congressional delegation. And I just feel like this is not the America I know. I do not think it is what we want to be. And thus, this is a, I feel a moral compulsion to remind people what is happening right now with our government and encourage people to keep this on their list of things that they are fighting to end to restore decency and respect for refugees in this world. To those who are listening to this conversation, who are picking up and reading a copy of your book, to Americans who are frustrated and share your concerns, what can they be doing? What's your advice? The first thing is weigh in with any state um, or a, a member of Congress, a, a member of the House, a member of the Senate, weigh in with them. Second, use your network uh, to get people together and talk about this issue. Use my book, if you'd like, as a way to read about it and have a topic. It's very, I made it very readable. Lots of stories that, that illuminate pieces of a complex uh, system. And proceed to donate money to groups that are, are helping address the immigration challenge, uh, groups like Refugees uh, International. Uh, Use your your voice and your resources to say, I don't accept as an American, I do not accept the mistreatment of children from around the world arriving on our border. 
One final question. Looking ahead to 2020, you opted out of running this time around. Wondering what your assessment is of this race and what you make of some of your colleagues and the Democratic candidates and their attempts to tackle this issue. Well, I am encouraging them to keep reminding America of the vast difference between their views collectively and where President Trump is. Uh, and certainly they can argue over over nuances, make their case for their best vision, but but keep reminding folks that their visions are so close together compared to where Trump is. Trump, who wants to establish a vast system of internment camps, who has children sleeping on concrete floors, who contests the issue of whether he has to provide basic hygiene to children, who has a for-profit prison set up to to hold 3,200 kids in Florida. They're paid $750 a day on a no-compete contract, who has deliberately stymied the ability of children to be referred to sponsors' homes so they can be in playgrounds and schools while they await adjudication of their asylum claim. Remind, I want my colleagues to keep reminding America of the difference of where they are and where Trump is. Senator Jeff Merkley, thank you so much for joining us. The book again is America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you. Take care now. And that does it for us today. On behalf of my colleague, Jonathan Carl, we'd like to thank Cindy McCain and Senator Jeff Merkley. And thanks to the whole powerhouse team, Avery Miller, Angie Yak, and the great Trevor Hastings. We'll be back next week with another episode of Powerhouse Politics.